Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has six years of law enforcement analysis experience. She started out with the Halifax Regional Police in Canada, moved on to Cincinnati Police Department, and is now with DataWalk. She's here to talk about OSINT and human trafficking. Please welcome Catalin Howard. Catalin, how are we doing? Good. How are you, Jason? I am doing very well. So I'm really interested in hearing your story just because you're going from Canada to the United States and you got a couple good conversation topics here with OSINT and human trafficking, which are popular in the analyst conversation these days. Oh, I appreciate that. So take it that since you are, we're at Cincinnati Police Department and now data walk that Charlie Gerberti stole you from Cincinnati Police Department. He absolutely did. (laughs) So, hey, he has given me a lot of business over the past year since I've (laughs) had him on. He gave me this list of analysts of tomorrow, which gave me five or six interviews. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Okay. So before Nova Scotia, I was actually in Connecticut. And before that, I was in Nova Scotia again but I'm originally from Ohio. So there's a whole background before I actually got into the law enforcement profession. I actually had no interest in law enforcement to start with. Like my entrance into this field was pretty untraditional. I didn't finish college. I actually didn't know what my niche really was because I have so many varied interests. I thought that I wanted to be a therapist and I really wanted to work with victims of sexual abuse as a therapist. So I tried playing around with different things in college and professionally doing advocacy work and volunteering with crisis counselors, becoming a crisis counselor myself. It just wasn't my thing because I didn't like all of the academia and the ivory tower that sat behind it. So I ended up dropping out of school and I moved to Connecticut, where my family now lives, and just really tried to take stuff, like some time for myself to figure out what I wanted to do. So I was about the age of 21 at that point. I found my interest in human trafficking just by the prior therapy experience and a general interest in things that are off the beaten path. So moving to Connecticut, I was trying to find things that were a little bit dark and macabre and and places that people don't typically visit. And I found the Berlin Turnpike. And I found that the Berlin Turnpike has a lot of instances of human trafficking. It was an old route for truckers to take back in the day. So it's lined with motels that are reminiscent of the 1950s and it has the diners it has that whole look that you you associate with the 1950s Hmm. but nobody's staying at those motels anymore they charge by an hourly rate and it's become a hot spot for trafficking found out that somebody wrote a book about it and i reached out to that person i was like hey i'm really interested in what you're doing do you need help with anything and he actually responded to me and he threw me out into 
the world of human trafficking and law enforcement and different advocacy groups that were investigating potential locations. Law enforcement got a hold of me and they were they asked me if I was willing to participate in some undercover work where I would go into the strip clubs that were suspected of allowing human trafficking to occur. Man, it sounds like you were almost trafficked yourself there. Who was the author and what was the book? So yeah, I can do a shout out for him. His name is Raymond Bouchard. Mm-hmm. And he is the one that has written the book on the Berlin Turnpike. And he's the one that threw me into this field. He does a lot of advocacy work now still and provides training in the area of New England. So you show this interest in human trafficking and you get the response back from the author. And then, but it seems like that's a a huge step forward to actually then going into undercover. So those seem like a, that seems like a couple of really big steps in there to get involved with human trafficking. Yeah, there were a lot of large steps and I'm, I'm skipping over some of the details in between. He had connections with people in the field and got me in touch with them and they saw an opportunity. They saw that I was, you know, desperate to get experience. And as a, a younger woman who has tattoos and piercings and doesn't look like a cop, isn't a cop, they're like, this is a prime opportunity to send somebody in to get more information that can just go and talk to the girls and figure out who is actually running the place and actually stop it, shut it down. It's a big step, and looking back on it now, almost 10 years later, I do recognize that it is a significant leap, and if it were to happen now, if I were to be approached, and somebody were to be like, do you want to go into the strip club, cat?" I would absolutely not do that. Yeah, so then, so was there training for this? Like, how how did they get you from, okay, yeah, I want to do this, to then being able to go undercover? Uh, So a lot of my training just came from different advocacy groups that I worked for, and the law enforcement department put me through a specific crisis training to crisis management. Undercover in the way that, like, you know, not how you think of a cop going undercover. You know, I didn't have a badge. I didn't have a gun. You know, it was, you You should think of it more of, that's doing research for like a PhD that mm-hmm. wants to do research on human trafficking and strip clubs. Like I didn't have a security clearance. I didn't, you know, have access to the cases that they were working on. They just threw me in and told me, get as much information as you can, bring it back to us. I didn't get to see who they tracked down or anything like that. So it was like as if they were using an intern or a college student to get information for them. What did you find out? How was the majority of the trafficking working? So just to be vague about it too, without giving anybody away, it was domestic trafficking. Most sex trafficking in the U.S. is domestic. You know, you you think of trafficking as being either a little rich white girl being taken to a third world country and getting pawned off, but that's really not what it is. Or you think of somebody else being brought in from one of those countries and being sold across, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world. Mm -hmm. This situation and most situations involving trafficking, it's a matter of socioeconomics, mental health. 
So a lot of these girls I found, they weren't super underage. I mean, anything underage is underage, of course. Mm -hmm. But there weren't 11-year-olds with lipstick on. It was girls that were 16, 17, who had been in abusive households that got manipulated by somebody that promised them a better life. And in that process, 99.9% of the time, they were also hooked on drugs through that person. So the way that the perpetrator in these instances would make them stay is by keeping them hooked on, hooked on opiates, typically, and providing that. And then they don't have enough money to get out, or they don't want to get out because of addiction. So that was the whole reason for it. The person that was that typically runs it usually doesn't do the opiates, opiates themselves, and they benefit off of taking these girls and making money off of them. The perpetrators, what did you find that is typical of them? How would you characterize them? Um, usually you can't make a typical profile of them. Mm-hmm. No, I, I might get... A lot of flack for that, but in in my case, I have seen perpetrators from different walks of life. Mm -hmm. It comes from a power struggle. A lot of the cases that I've worked on have stemmed from men that have always been horrible with women, or they also come from a similar lifestyle where they grew up impoverished and they want some sense of control over their life but you can also find people from very powerful positions that are doing the same thing so i think it's a mindset of wanting to be in control and wanting to get the thrill and the money from it how about those folks that are coordinating and if there's a term for it i'm sorry i don't know what it is the folks that are bringing in the perpetrators, hooking them up with the young women. How would you characterize them? Typically, people of power. They will usually be in some sort of government position or a, a business position. There's always something that there's a give and take. So they can offer something and then the perpetrator can offer them something back. And then you get the control leveraged because... They don't want these secrets coming out, so you get trapped in this environment. And uh, once the perpetrator has control, the the other person can introduce them to other people in their life that will give them the necessities that they need to continue running this business. It almost sounds like it's not their only gig in town. It's something where this trafficking helps their other business or their other part of their work life. Yeah. So you would typically see these girls either advertising or taken to motels, hotels in the area. And I'm speaking generally too. This is what I've seen over the past several years. And the the person that is trafficking them will often have some sort of partnership with the employees of the hotel or the person that's running the hotel. Same with like any sort of transportation that the girls take, any sort of business that they would frequent, you know, landlord, hotel owners, transportation, anybody from a bank that's controlling their finances, they turn a blind eye to income that's unaccounted for that comes in. So they they have their hands in all of these different groups. 
This doesn't seem like it's in the shadows. It seems like a lot of people have their hands in this cookie jar. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's no secret online either. They they post these escort ads and and some of the times they are just girls performing sex work. So it's really hard to sift through these advertisements online to identify what are victims of trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I think that the traffickers know that. So they are okay with being so blatant about their actions. Yeah. Now, is that legal in Connecticut? Mm, you know what? I don't know. You would think that I would know because I've worked mm. in this field, but it's just because of my my stance on it and being mm-hmm. Canadian. Like, I yeah. personally don't care if they're doing sex work. If there's a legal aspect to it, then it makes it harder to enforce because you have to make sure you know exactly where that line is between legal and illegal. Definitely. And you have to think about the repercussions too. Mm -hmm. If you're going to arrest a guy for seeking out a prostitute or a sex worker, you're just making the environment more unsafe for that sex Mm -hmm. worker because they're going to do that sex work no matter what. Now they're just going to find even unsafer ways to do it that aren't going to get people caught. And then the people that are attracted to doing that kind of stuff are a little bit skeezy and will rob them or hurt them or something. So, so you do have to define that line and understand those complications that come with it. Making arresting the girl doesn't make sense because they have, you know, addictions and, and, they might just be doing this to get by. So it's not fair to punish them. So you have to understand the variables that make up what an actual trafficking situation is and when to get involved and shut that down. Back to your undercover work then. You're going in there trying to get intel. You're trying to paint this picture to figure out how all this is working, what's the operation like? Do you actually get hired or is this just something like this? Like for lack of better description, you're going in there for a job interview and you're asking a bunch of questions to see what you can gather. Uh, I am just getting thrown in there. So Mm -hmm. as a patron, as a girl, it was typically the same three places. So I became a known face in those areas and I mean, I might sound really stupid, but I didn't understand what intelligence was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know crime analysis was a thing. Like I said, I never had any interest in law enforcement before I actually got into the field. So I just thought that they wanted me to talk to the girls because I was still at that point very interested in becoming a therapist doing therapy work. So I was like, yeah, of course I'll talk to the girls and see what I can do. It wasn't really much different than going to be an advocate for a sexual abuse victim that's going through a rape kit at the hospital. That's how I viewed it at the time. So I was just in there to get, just to talk to the girls, to give them somebody to like put their problems on Mm -hmm. rather than get information. So whether I was dancing with them or a patron of them i was just there mm-hmm. yeah did you go as far as being with clients no no, no, no. Right. so your focus was on the girls and then getting the girls to talk and then they would tell you how this operation was going on yeah because you you ask them about their life and 
I mean, it was really important for me to just get to know them. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I didn't understand the intelligence process or anything like that. I was just genuinely interested in their life and what they liked doing and what their situation like was like at home. Like, do they have kids? Like, where do you live? This, you're a person. And they would tell me, they would tell me that if they were going to school or if they were like couch hopping. And then eventually just those conversations would lead into, and that's how I met, et cetera, et cetera, of the guy that's running this. And I, I don't love it. And eventually like I'll get out. So, you know, in, in a qualitative way through talking to these people that just need somebody to talk to, you're able to help them without punishing them. Now, do you feel that most of them can get out and do get out? Or is this once you're in, you're in? I think it's possible mm -hmm. to get out. I really do. I, I think that you can get out of any horrible situation. And mm -hmm. that might be cliche, but with the right mindset and determination, I believe that you really can. And I've seen it. I've seen people get out of that. The reality is that a lot of people do go back to it or rely on it. Addiction is a real thing. It's an mm -hmm. epidemic in our country. So it's really hard to say. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned the different variables that come into play in this particular area. If you had full authority, what would your solutions be? I get asked that question a lot. And the, the sad thing is that I don't know. I don't have an answer for that because although we're talking about domestic work here, there is still trafficking all across the globe and they involve very powerful people, these cases, and not every case is the same. I don't know if there is a perfect solution for any of this. I just want to do my best to chip away and help the people that are victims. With your experience with the advocacy groups, this is their way of trying to gather intelligence, trying to gather information on this situation. But you are putting folks in danger, potentially. Like, there's a lot that could go wrong. You mentioned that you don't have a weapon. You don't have, it didn't sound like you got much training should the shit hit the fan. Is this something that you think advocacy groups should be doing is sending people undercover in these situations? Oh God, absolutely not. <laughs> Definitely not. I'm just, I'm impulsive and I kind of like being in chaotic situations, but I, God, would I never promote that. My God, no, no. At what point did you realize that I need to get out of this? I need to go do something else. There wasn't really a, a point where I thought I need to get out of this. Mm -hmm. I, like I said, I never had interest in law enforcement. I didn't know what intelligence was. It's a combination of things like my friend one day told me that I was really good at online stalking. And that's how I discovered <laughs> that that was, that was a skill that I had. I thought mm -hmm. that everybody that grew up and around the time that I did knew how to use tools the way that I do. And then the catalyst, I think, of everything was a breakup. My best friend died of a heroin overdose. And then my dad got diagnosed with cancer all within two weeks or one week. And I was just like, I need to get out of this state. I need some time to myself. And I really just like, again, with the impulsivity, I looked at jobs in Halifax because that's where I went to university. 
and I'm Canadian, so I can work in Canada or the US. And I was just looking at the government jobs to see if there was anything that sounded interesting or cool. And I found the crime analyst position, applied for it and and got it and took my shitty little Prius and, and drove up there with the, <laughs> the car packed full of stuff and my cat. And we drove up there and we we did that for a year because their their laws on maternity leave are more lenient. So I was covering for somebody on maternity leave. So I had a year to figure out honestly my life. It wasn't really mm-hmm. even about the profession at all to start with. I just wanted to get away from my life. Mm-hmm. And I happened to find stuff that I was really good at. All right. So you go into this interview then with the Halifax Regional Police Department essentially saying like, hey, I can do this internet research stuff. Somebody tells me I'm good at it. This is what I've been able to do. And to the point of, okay, you impress the hiring manager and you get this. It sounds like it was short term because of the maternity situation. Yeah. So so it was was a year with the opportunity to expand and, and make it a permanent position. Yeah. But you certainly must have impressed them during the interview. It was... So I I didn't I actually didn't promote my internet research skills at all. Oh, okay. When I read the position, it sounded more technical. And when you when you think of crime analysis, there are a lot of technical parts to it. Mm-hmm. And I am skilled in different coding languages just because that is, you know, that's my hobby, coding. Mm-hmm. And reading the job description, I was like, yeah, I can do that. This involves software and like different analysis tools. I took research methods, I took stats, but I also have this coding experience. Like I like math. When I got up there though, when I actually started working there, they did not do any of that. It was mostly intelligence work, which I had no idea it was going to be like <laughs> that, but I loved it. So it's not necessarily the math per se. So it's working on with investigations, supporting investigations, that type of aspect as opposed to more of the technical parts of the analytic Yeah, job. yeah. For that position, it was. The the description that they posted, I don't know if they got that from like a generic IACA posting. Mm-hmm. Like this is what a crime analyst does. Mm-hmm. But it was it was certainly more intelligence work. And yeah, they when they interviewed me, I I gave them a lot of my undercover examples and my different research methods and background and psych. And I think they liked the combination of those skills and saw me as something that could be moldable. You were only there a year, but what do you think you learned as an analyst that year? I talk about this as it's just a a journey for finding myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because when I moved to Halifax to take this job, I think I had just turned 24. So... Mm -hmm. Or 25. So really, it was just a matter of figuring out what I wanted to do. And while I was there, I I learned a lot about what I liked and what I can contribute to with the skills that I have. So there were cases that involved a lot of open source intelligence, which I didn't even know what the term for that was until I started there. We had a potential mass shooter at a local mall and I was the only person working and they asked me to get as much information as I could and I put a whole intelligence packet together just based on things that I found online. Mm -hmm. 
And we ended up having to give that to the FBI because the person resided in the U.S. and we were able to stop them. It wasn't until that that, like, I just thought everybody could do that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I still have that feeling a lot of the time where it's like everybody can get online and find this information. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until like I, I found all of that information and stopped somebody that I was like, oh, okay, I really like doing this. This is very rewarding. So I learned a lot about what I like and what I'm good at. I learned how to deal with cops, which is, can be very difficult, but I'm I'm kind of a, a bitchy cold person a lot of the time. <laughs> So it wasn't very hard to like figure it out, but what cop talk is very different than normal people talk. Yeah. So I learned how to talk to cops. Uh, I learned I they threw me into a bunch of certifications and trainings and and things that I didn't even know existed. And as a 24, 25 year old, I've just felt like the coolest girl uh-huh. ever, which I, I wasn't, but. Yeah. I really, I do appreciate the time that I had there and I could have stayed there permanently. But like I said, the whole reason that I had gone up there was to take like a, a mental health break. Yeah. And my mental health break was getting a job in another country. Yeah. As a criminal intelligence analyst. So yeah. that is quite an impressive break. You're also during this time that you worked on human trafficking investigations, especially with the prosecution. So, and then, so this is a different aspect of what you've done so far. So from your point of view, now you're working with police and prosecutions, more of the government aspect of human trafficking. So what was some of the stuff that you were gleaning from that? Yeah, so it is, it's really tough to explain because I went into all of this fresh out of dropping out of college. So I hadn't really had a big girl job. I did uh, some of that work for the advocacy group. So I started with the nonprofit, which is actually very close to the rules of government positions as well. So that was really all I knew was how to work a government position and locate human trafficking based on grants, based on regulations and, and red tape. Mm-hmm. And, and and working with people that would push back. So going into all of this, that was all I ever knew. Well, let's talk about the transition then to Cincinnati. So how do you go from Halifax to Cincinnati? Truthfully, I was dating a boy that lived here. <laughs> <laughs> and you can leave that in, that's fine. <laughs> I, won't, I won't shout his name out, but yeah. I had been dating him for a while. Mm-hmm. For, well, like a year. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Lebanon, Ohio, so okay. 30 minutes north of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Well, we went to high school together, so it wasn't, you know, a 90-day fiancé situation <laughs> bringing me back from Canada into the U.S. Mm-hmm. The whole time while I was in Halifax was that I would be moving back to Cincinnati regardless of what job I got mm-hmm. and that we would figure it out. It just so happened that during the end of that year that I was working in Halifax, Cincinnati posted a position for a crime analyst. I applied to it, and then a couple months later, a month before I was supposed to move from Halifax, they called and offered me an interview the day after I moved back to Cincinnati. Wow. So really, it it worked out like a charm. Mm -hmm. The whole reason, though, that I'm in Cincinnati, and I'm still in Cincinnati now, was for a boy. My career has lasted longer than him. (laughs) 
it's all how the, all the dots are connected, and that's certainly how you <laughs> connected two dots <laughs> together. So it happens to a lot of us. So don't don't feel badly. No, I just I get that question a lot. It's like, how did you end up from here to there and everywhere? It's like for, for a boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're fairly familiar with Cincinnati then, because that was my going to be my question too, because Cincinnati is a r- relatively conservative city, and I always described Cincinnati as a 55-year-old man. It just, it's been around, it knows what it is, and it can be a little curmudgeon at times, but at the same time, it's not to the point where it's that old kind of thing. So I moved from Cincinnati to Nashville, and to me, that was a big jump because Nashville was like a 20-something-year-old type of thing. Yeah, I had no idea what it was going to be in 10 years. It was a lot of moving parts, a lot of growth. Whereas at Cincinnati, it just seemed like there wasn't as much growth going on. This is even before the the banks. When I was there, it was, you know, in the aughts. So it was before the banks were developed even. And they were fighting over that for decades. So, so I don't know. Like, so I mean, Maybe I never actually went up to Cincinnati all that often when mm-hmm. I grew up in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. I, I I went to high school in Lebanon, and as soon as I graduated high school, I was like, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Everybody that I knew was going to, they were going to UC or mm-hmm. State. I was like, I'm Canadian. I'm going to go to Dalhousie University in Nova yeah. Scotia and yeah. never come back. Yeah, <laughs> until you met the boy. So I never really actually went to Cincinnati. I just, Mm -hmm. I knew during high school that it was, it wasn't safe. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why I never went. It was, it was during the same time that OTR over the Rhine was listed as one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Mm -hmm. the United States. So this is about 2007 to 2011. I moved away, never thought of coming back. When I came back, I was absolutely shocked. This it's surprising to me that you'd explain Cincinnati as a, a conservative, commercially old man, because my experience with it is is actually quite the opposite. There's been a lot of growth. There's been a lot of movement in the different neighborhoods. There are so many fun bars to go to, so many cool museums and events going on. I think it's over the past, what has it been now, 12 years, it's mm-hmm. really found new life in it. Yeah. And that's why... I ended up staying is because I love it here. Yeah. So it has been a it has been a while since I've been there. So I left 2011. And so that again that was before really the banks got established. That was before, you know, a lot of the the parks and the revitalization. We talked a little bit on the prep call yesterday how the police department there's an actual district dedicated to that banks area. Well, as as a thirty year old, I try to avoid the banks because that's where all the college kids go. You know, <laughs> that's the yeah. tourist trap, right? Yeah, it it really is. Like I don't want to be around frat boys and booze, and it's just too packed for me. Yeah. I live in the yeah. hippy dippy area of Northside, so I'm yeah. happy where I'm at. This is Jennifer Loper. Hold the door. It's an easy way to be kind to other humans. 
Hi, this is Brian Fenton. I'm a crime analyst at the South Bend Police Department. I'm also the treasurer on the Indiana chapter for the Midwest Gang Investigators Association. And I just wanted to let everyone know that we do have our national gang conference coming up. It's on May 11th, May 8th to May 11th. It will be held in South Bend, Indiana at the Doubletree Hotel. This can be forsworn in civilian law enforcement personnel, anyone from crime analysts, prosecutors, sworn personnel, as well as probation and parole, or anyone who works at jails and prisons. We will have a variety of topics, so whether it's open source and social media, Gangs 101, crime analysis, as well as gang analysis, how they kind of, you know, come together, as well as gang task forces. So there's definitely a wide variety. We also offer networking opportunities after each day of training. So it's definitely going to be very impactful and definitely a lot of knowledge and information to learn. You can get all of this information at MGIA.org. And again, that National Gang Conference is May 8th to May 11th in South Bend, Indiana. Get to Cincinnati Police Department as a crime analyst. What are they asking you to do? Um, this might be my my gripe, <laughs> my unpopular opinion. <laughs> so when I got there, I had my experience from Connecticut and Halifax, which, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, wasn't a ton of professional experience, but I thought I knew what I was walking into. <laughs> I thought that it was going to be intelligence-based and a lot of qualitative work and and workups on people and places. When I got there, I was very disappointed in the fact that it was all just numbers and regular reporting and using outdated databases to to pull in information. So actually, this is a fun story. I got written up for within the first three months of me working there because I had um, been talking to a homicide investigator and they were talking about a homicide that had happened and I was like oh I was on that person's Facebook page and they posted this on this date and they asked me if I could send them that information so I took a screenshot and I wrote it up like an intelligence report like I've done in the past with other departments and I sent it and I CC'd my higher ups on it. And right as soon as that message sent, they pulled me into the office and wrote me up and said, that's not what we do. So honestly, it was really, really depressing. So, it, and I think, find that fascinating. It wasn't that you broke any kind of policy with the police department. It was, we have a task and that's not our task. Yeah, it was, that's not what we do we're stepping on toes. Yeah. That was my first experience with the barriers that crime analysts face regularly. I just happened to get written up for it. Hmm. So it is discouraging. You're in there, you're new, you want to help. And it sounds like the information that you were supplying was helpful. So I don't understand why that would have been such a big deal to come down so hard on you to, to write you up because it, it, it discourages you from helping out. Right. It's like, oh, I'm not going to get involved next time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And but that that's what they wanted to encourage. They're like, we don't want you to get involved. <laughs> that's not what you do. I think a lot of it came down to, I don't, geez, this sounds 
really cliche as well. I just don't think they liked me as a person. Um, because like over it. over the years, I saw them in situations where somebody else would do that, and they didn't get in as much trouble as I did. But I'm a feisty girl. I'm rebellious. Yeah. I always have been. So when they told me, that's not what you do, you can't do that, stop stepping on toes, I wore my sharpest heels and stepped on everybody's toes. <laughs> <laughs> I had... What's Sally's last name? Sally. Oh, Tarabah. She came after me at Cincinnati and they were on the second floor there where the police chief was. So it's funny that you mentioned shoes because they told her that her shoes weren't appropriate. <laughs> yeah, no, I, if, God, I would tell them to get fucked. Like if it, you wanted an intelligence analyst, you knew my background, you knew I was kind of spicy, shouldn't have hired me if you don't want me to be spicy. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, at least they didn't say, it's like, you know what, we used to have this guy here named Jason Alder, and he used to ruffle feathers too, and we don't want anything like that anymore. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, they probably tell horror stories about me now. They'd be like, we don't want that. <laughs> she was mean. Yeah, yeah. They'll do a segment on the analyst not to hire, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they'll be like, we want obedience. This girl is insubordinate. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's that's kind of a bummer then. So that's the first instance there. You were there four years, so yeah, I know. what it else? Just gets worse. <laughs> yeah, it just gets worse? Oh. It really does. And like, so I kept getting promised, you know, we'll we'll get like an intel position for you soon. We'll, we'll have it happen. And then they hired a woman who's a couple years older than me, Natalie Martinez, who now works for the Kokomo Police Department in Indiana. And her and I became like best friends. And I got to show her like all of the work that I used to do. And she got to enjoy that more than the work that we were doing and the work that she had done for her PhD and all of that. And she then left and was able to thrive somewhere else. So I loved that. And that like instances like that kept happening. So I stayed. Eventually, eventually my supervisor left and it was just assumed that I would be, you know, sliding into his position as the senior mm -hmm. um, because I had been there for three years and they didn't hire anybody for a while. And I was just running the unit. I was training these four new analysts that ha he had hired before he left. And I was trying to incorporate more intelligence into the unit and change things around. And it did get a lot of good reception for a while from command staff. Like we changed up a lot of the way that we report things. We were providing more intelligence, active intelligence during investigations. We were doing what in the years that I had been doing this and studying what I thought we had should have been doing the whole time. All of that said, when they finally posted the position, the position required that you had either a master's or a PhD. Oh. So I, I took it to the union. I was like, if they don't accept years of experience and, you know, seniority, like this is against the, the code. So they had to go through all of that stuff again, but still when it came time to like do the initial interviews, I didn't get an interview for the senior position. The captain that took over at that time, he and I fought like crazy. I did not hold back with him. He said, we need a PhD candidate 
to come in and run this unit. And I was like, why? I have all the technical knowledge. I have the intelligence background. I've been running this unit for a year. What do you mean we need somebody else? And he just said, he told me, and I quote, he told me, I'm not, you're not good enough, Kat. You're not good enough to run this unit. Why don't you go back to college and finish your degrees and then we'll hire you. Hmm. So I told him to get fucked and I left. Yeah, it's it's too bad. And we talk about this on this show from time to time is I have guests on here that just have a high school education and had a long career as not only an analyst, but as an analyst supervisor. There's a wide range here of educational background that you can have. Even even getting a master's degree or a PhD, I often ask folks that have gotten those, like, how do you think that influenced your analytical career? And, you know, certainly there's a lot of advantages, but, it, you know, in their situation, it wasn't required. It was just something that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so certainly here they were a master's degree, See, I see, I have a master's degree. That's that's a lot. Now, is, remind me, is on the to be a captain at the police department? Do you have to have a master's degree if you're a sworn? I, Do you, I don't think so. Yeah, so it's kind of funny that they would require that for a civilian position, but not require that for a sworn position. Yeah, they really wanted a PhD person because there was just such a lack of understanding what analysis is, just analysis Mm -hmm. in general, any sort of analysis, databases, numbers, like, you know, their idea of all of that was, well, that's what the kids at UC do when they do research. So we need that. We needed somebody that does that. Yeah. I was always, seemed like I was competing with the University of Cincinnati when I was there too. It was annoying. I was like, okay, why are you not asking the the analysts that are at the department to do what you're asking to do? Why are you asking somebody that doesn't work for the police department to do that? It's I did get like a little bit of of karma though, because you know one of the the girls that I had trained, the analyst that that came in like way after I had been there, Rachel Kleindorfer, she was just as miserable as I was, CPD, and. We were, I was always trying to find her a new place to go. And I think maybe like six months ago, they opened up the crime analyst position at UC and I recommended her for it and she got it. Nice. They hired her from CPD. They took her away from CPD. So I was like, yeah, take that bitch. (laughs) 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 Ultimate fuck you from afar. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Man. So, huh. Well, I was going to say, what did you accomplish while you're at Cincinnati Police Department? But I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure how much you did. Well, you know, I would love to say that I changed the unit and incorporated an intelligence. Like, that's what I wanted to do, ultimately. And I thought I was getting there, but they threw a wall at me. But I would say, really, that what I take away from all of that was that I love training people. Out of all of the cases that I've worked on and any investigation I've been a part of, of nothing can compare to the feeling I get when I see somebody else become successful and do something that they love. So, you know, Natalie, who I brought up, Rachel, they they went on to do things that made them really happy. And while I was working with them and training them, they discovered the things that they were good at. And over everything else, that that makes me the happiest. That's the most success I've, I've felt in my life. Nice. 
right. Well, let's talk about data walk then. So you leave Cincinnati Police Department. Shirley helps you out, and you get the job there at Data Walk. So what do you, what are you getting into here at Data Walk? So Charlie gives me a lot of freedom. Charlie's my boss. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really sure what to expect, honestly, when they hired me on. I I knew that you worked with a bunch of different types of intelligence units or people that at least work in the investigative field, places that I didn't even know required investigations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really interested me a lot was that you wouldn't be doing the same thing every day. And being such a varied person myself and not finishing college for that reason, wanting to get my hands in everything, that really drew me in. It's like one day I could be working on money laundering, the next I could be, you know, working on import trading fraud. Things that I never thought I would look at or care about or know existed. So it's really been great learning-wise, and there's a lot of flexibility with what I get to do in my time. Charlie is great about seeing the things that I'm good at and latching on to those things and encouraging them further for me to build them out. So I'm working on a data model right now that is specifically designed for open source intelligence and human trafficking. And I'm creating web scrapers to scrape different sites and bring in information that would assist in real investigations. And there's just more opportunity for me to practice these more modern skills that you don't see in law enforcement, like coding and Python and Jupyter Notebook. That's not, those aren't tools that you use in police departments. And I I felt like, (laughs) what have I been waiting for this whole time that they had been holding me back? I really enjoy doing this. So it's been, it's been really great. I've loved it. Yeah. So when do you anticipate the tool to be ready? So right now it's like in a beta version. Mm-hmm. Uh, we demonstrated it this morning to somebody else and they had the good question of how it's, it compares to Traffic Jam, which is the more well-known tool for human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Traffic Jam is, is a tool that scrapes different escort ads from across the web and provides more information on people that could potentially be sex trafficked. And I had to tell them it's not in competition with that. And Traffic Jam is more, they're very restrictive about who they allow to use their program. Mm -hmm. The thing that I'm using right now, the thing I'm creating, I, maybe not necessarily the data walk model, but something related to it, I want anybody to be able to use this. And I think that's the difference. It's it's not designed for just law enforcement. It's designed for a nurse that might see that there is bruising around somebody's pelvic area and their story is not adding up. And they want these accessible tools to see maybe if this person is on a missing child flyer through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children if they've moved around a lot, what is their backstory just through open information. So as far as when it's ready on data walk side, it's, it's due to be ready in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that's from like a monetary perspective. So, you know, mm-hmm. data walk, proposing it to different companies that might buy it mm-hmm. personally, though, I want to design a course and tools that anybody can use that anybody can access if college students feel the same way that I did when I was in my early 20s and want to learn something in a more accessible way, 
like I want to be able to provide that for them. I like the approach too, because as you said, it's most of these big issues that law enforcement is trying to tackle is not just law enforcement. You talk right. about health field and government and different uh, institutions in our society that can help. And so opening this tool up to all the different players, all the different variables, as you mentioned earlier, giving them an opportunity to identify and to communicate is just going to help the situation. Right. And criminal intelligence, it, it doesn't have to be criminal intel. Mm -hmm. It could just be intelligence on a person that can really make a positive impact on society in various ways that are not yeah. really being explored right now. It's, it's, it's interesting, your journey. Right. And as you mentioned that you started out as a hobby with programming and worked through the different analyst jobs to land here to where you're using your history, using your passion of programming to build this tool for this company. So it's, it sounds like you stuck the landing after a rocky situation. Yeah, I don't take no for an answer. <laughs> Speaking of the programming, the configuration languages, I, I do want to get your perspective on that as it relates to analysis, law enforcement analysis. I work with SQL every day. I, I really encourage my listeners and analysts to, to learn SQL, to be able to write queries, to ask the data questions, because that's you're really going to be able to get the most out of a database by doing that. I have less experience in terms of Python or HTML or JSON that that you have. So I wanted to just see what your recommendation was for analysts in terms of learning these languages and using them in their analytical task. That's a tricky question because I would love to promote coding and modern data analysis techniques all day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but a lot of the reality is for most analysts is that law enforcement agencies and, and government agencies overall, I've seen it in different departments, are not really tech forward. They are the last to get on the bandwagon for modern technology. So it really becomes tricky to try and learn those techniques or see their worth when the environment around you is moving in slow motion. But at the same time, machine learning data science is going to be important within the next five years. If you learn how to do that stuff, it's going to give you the upper hand, even if the department hasn't gotten on the same page yet. If you have that skill, you'll be able to think quicker. You're going to be able to see patterns quicker. Even if you're not necessarily using that language on a daily basis, it's just the training and, and looking at code like that all the time. And then you can apply that to different projects on the side. You know, that's what, that's what I had to do when I was working in government positions was find a reason to make a project with the coding that I knew. And even if nobody used it, I had it. I had it for my portfolio. And I, I promoted the same thing to analysts that I've trained. And, and now they are going on to create JavaScript. So it really, it takes self-determination to learn those codes. But it, 
you have to keep in mind that it, it is really important as the world changes, just because government and law enforcement environment is not, the world is still changing. And those things are going to be really important as society changes. Hmm. Do you have a recommendation, either a book or resource for data science for our listeners? Uh, I don't off the top of my head. I grew up in the MySpace age, which is where I learned how to use HTML, uh, <laughs> customize your backgrounds. So no, I, I didn't. I didn't use a book, and I'm not really sure, honestly, what to recommend. I learned this stuff by wanting something and then figuring out how to do it. So if I wanted to get all of the tables from an escort site, I learned how to scrape it. You mentioned finding your desire for teaching and the, the satisfaction that you get from watching your students learn and you're into mentoring and, and you're developing a workshop for this fall for internet investigations. And yes. so mm -hmm. briefly for our listeners, kind of describe what the workshop will be. So just as data science and machine learning is becoming more applicable to investigations and really any career, open source intelligence is also becoming more and more important, more than it already was. So open source intelligence is, is passive intelligence that anybody can access. And you think of, of the different apps that are becoming popular, things like TikTok, which are which is based out of China, and the things that you can find on that that would help an investigation. I'd find that a lot of people that work in illicit massage parlors will have a TikTok account where they're promoting girls and they're very openly honest about it. So the course that I want to create is going to, one, teach people what OSINT is and maybe just a little bit of the history. I don't want to bore everybody, but how it changes because that way they can see how rapidly it changes. It changes every single day, the tools, the things to look for, the, the terminology that people are using, that changes every day. And then I, I want to go into the, the legalities of it. You know, you can't just use everybody's public information against them. That's called doxing. There's obviously a line there between legal and illegal, ethical and eth unethical. Where do you find that analysts start venturing towards that line and getting a little bit too close? Is there is there a particular way you can describe it or certain stuff that they do you feel that gets them too close to that line? I think that if they're finding, they start finding addresses and phone numbers, that is all public information usually. A line that would be crossed is if they were to text that phone number or if they were to show up at that person's house, if they were to message them and be like, I know this information about you. <laughs> you don't, you can't contact them. Um, mm -hmm. Information is available, so you're going to find it no matter what, but you can't take that information and use it against somebody. That's where a lot of the, the legalities come in. There's also different laws around data storage when it comes to that kind of stuff as well. Sites are different in, in what they allow and don't allow. So it really depends. And, and those agreements that you sign, but you don't read when you sign up for a website, that lays <laughs> it all out. Yeah, I'm sorry. I did cut you off there as you were describing the workshop. So you got the legality portion of it. Then what's after that? Okay. So the, the next part, it would be a brief mental health crisis management portion of the course because if you're actually interested in getting into this work if you're participating in doing these open source cases 
you're likely to see information that might be upsetting, triggering, and it's really important to take care of your mental well-being while you're going through that information. So after all of those modules, uh, what the course is going to entail are some mock investigations that I will be creating. And the student will go through those and use the tools that I've provided them. So that I'm going to be giving an OSINT framework. So these are the tools that you can use that are available to you. Go at it, see what you can find on this person. And at the end of it, they come back, present their findings, see how close they were to the actual investigation result. And then after that, providing real world cases, real leads and if somebody comes up with a genuine lead that provides a lot of information that can get submitted to an actual law enforcement agency. So the course is meant to teach you all the tools and reporting techniques and data visualization, but it's also meant to provide you with real experience and potentially a positive outcome with what you're learning. Now, is all the tools that you use in the workshop, are those open source or free? Yeah, yep. You get the module on here about taking notes and report writing. I do feel that that is definitely a don't be that analyst, is a don't be that analyst that does not screen capture or record the, the source of the information that you get in OSINT, right? That's a, that's a big no-no is to make sure that you're capturing everything that you need to capture in order for it to be used later. Yeah, you gotta imagine it as if you were on the stand in court and they're asking you, how did you find this? How did you specifically find this? On what date, what time? So it's really going to be important to know the specific URLs and the time frame and what led you to look at that information. So recording browsing history accurately, grabbing screenshots, writing the process down as it's happening mm -hmm. is, is really important. And I think a lot of, of training modules leave that part out. You can't just go and grab information for no reason and throw it at a police officer. Like, what are they going to do with that? Who are you developing this for? Is this your own endeavor or are you attached to a university or a different entity and getting this workshop together? So... Originally, it was just my idea. It was something that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I presented it to Charlie just to see what he thought about it. And we actually are hosting an event in the fall with a university that is willing to partner with us. I don't have the dates off the top of my head, but I can mm -hmm. provide those to you as well. Sure, sure. And what university is it? It's the University of South Carolina you get closer to that to make sure you send me the links because we'll make sure we share it on our site as well i like the different aspects of the different modules that you have i think most of the time if somebody was developing a course like this i think they would most likely not have one on mental health and well-being so i think that definitely makes your perspective unique in in creating this workshop and there are a handful of people that have also agreed to provide information for those different modules that are from universities or from uh, different fields that i might not be an expert in mm -hmm. so even for that field for the mental health well-being i have somebody that specializes in trauma-based approaches 
to investigations from the University of Cincinnati. So it's really a collaborative thing, and it's Upstate University of South Carolina that is putting it on for us. It is progressing in a way that I didn't think it would. <laughs> I just had an idea one night where I was like, you know what, I feel like I should put this together at some point. And I thought that was going to be a five-year plan, but it's turned into a <laughs> like a three-month plan. Charlie's a go-getter, so he's going to push and push. So It's okay. It, I, I, I like the encouragement. When you talk candidly or openly about OSINT is like, well, anybody can do it, I think is is the attitude. But I think just like anything else that anybody can do, not everybody can be efficient at it. And right. not everybody obviously avoids the pitfalls mm -hmm. of it as well. And so I think that's where people underestimate OSINT is it is so vast and so big that you need a plan in order to be effective. And there, I, yeah, you need a, a research plan and a checklist to make sure you don't go up, down every single rabbit hole that the internet has for you. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that really you could spend probably your whole day on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, right? And just be going after, over one rabbit hole over another and just keep on digging, digging, digging and, and, and really not come up with anything fruitful. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then when you come to explain that to an investigator or courtroom or what have you, they're going to ask you how you got to the final piece of information that you found. And you have <laughs> to think back through days of bullshit articles yeah. and sites that didn't work. And to explain that to an investigator is, I mean, I've been in that situation before uh -huh. when I first started doing this and they're, they're like, well, how did you find them? And I'm like, Oh, well, I started by Googling this restaurant and then ended up with their mother's maiden name. And, <laughs> you know, so it, it's really important to notice when you're getting down a rabbit hole and what pieces of information are key and what is just nonsense. Yeah. Hmm. And then do you have any other speaking engagements on OSINT coming up? Oh, not that I know of. No, not right now. That, it changes every week, to be honest. But I'm aiming for conferences. You know, I see it's going to be coming up in September. I, I hopefully will attend that and speaking on the topic. Yeah, well, I was just going to mention they just opened up their yeah. call for presenters. So that's that's Dallas. So if you're yeah, got a yearning to go to Dallas, that would be a good way to get there in September. <laughs> I really do. I just <laughs> I would love to go to Texas. You know, if you're in the mood to watch steers cross the road, it is. My favorite <laughs> You know, you might find something that you're interested in. Another one to your your various hobbies and whatnot. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of hobbies, let's talk about personal interest as we finished up this interview. So you have several things you just like to get into. you got many interests. One of them is that you are mapping out or developing visualizations for dive bars. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, Going to dive bars is my number one hobby. Not <laughs> not to sound like an alcoholic. I it really it comes down to the human aspect of it. I think my number one interest is other people. Mm -hmm. And going to a dive bar and sitting at the bar by yourself, whether like I go in there and read a book, you always meet 
the most interesting people and they're the, they're typically locals and I love traveling a lot so I seek out the local hole in the walls to get a feel for the type of people that live in that community and mm-hmm. I'll sit at that bar and I'll just talk to people and so I decided that you know if I'm going to all these places why not combine it with my data visualization skill and put them on a website or a map something that other people can access if they are interested in that. All right. So then first off, how do you define dive bar? Uh, That's a good question. How do you define dive bar? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to me, I would say the the dive bar can't be new. (laughs) Like I feel that I feel that the dive bar is defined in two major aspects. One is the entry point. Like, what does it look like as you are driving up and see it? And then the second part is what does it obviously looks like inside? That's to me would be the two major aspects of the dive bar. So a lot of the times you're unsure where the entrance is. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes it just kind of looks like a shack, but everybody in there is so familiar with the entrance that they don't question it. The inside, yep, like, dingy kind of falling apart but i find that there's a lot of comfort to that it smells like a 70s carpet that's just soaked (laughs) with cigarettes i think Uh, we have the same definition yeah so it is probably it's one of those things you probably know it when you see it type thing yeah exactly so how many dive bars do you have on your list um right now i have about 104 okay and that is U.S. and Canada? Right now, this is just the U.S. Obviously, there's the mapping aspect of it for data visualization, but what other aspects are you bringing to the table? So, you know, when I look at these types of things, I try to Google dive bars in this area. And a lot of the times you'll find somebody on Reddit that's asking a similar question. So I wanted to provide this for those types of people that like a similar atmosphere that may not be familiar with the area. But I also wanted to provide pieces of information that I try to find out before I go to these places. The like parking situation, can you park your cars or a parking lot? Is it street parking? Is it cash only? Do they serve food? And then the biggest thing that I wanna put into it is the, the safety aspect of it. If me as a young woman going into the bar by myself, do I feel unsafe doing that? And I think that's really important for the the safety aspect for a woman that wants to go in by themselves and they don't really want to get hit on by everybody or feel like they're going to get their drink spiked and they just want to be alone at a bar. Yeah, so I'm putting things in like that as well. From your experience and in dealing with people and dealing with various situations, your threshold for being uncomfortable is going to be different from maybe other many other women. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I also think that if a woman is looking to go to a dive bar by herself, you know, she <laughs> she probably has a low threshold as well. <laughs> but no, like certainly, you know, keep that in mind. I I wouldn't want anybody to be in danger. So just to be realistic about those aspects, certainly. Yeah. But I always find fascinating about any bar, really. You know, my sister worked when she was in college. She worked at Applebee's. And mm-hmm. they had regulars there at Applebee's at the bar, right? That yep. were char- characters, right? You, you get these certain people that are just there all the time, the regulars, and just fascinating 
people from yeah no i love i love those types of people i'm a regular at chili's which is not a dive bar (laughs) but i'm a regular there so yeah i I get that And, and like even the other day i was driving home from eastern kentucky and i stopped at a really really shady looking dive bar on the way home i learned so much about the farming community in that area <laughs> like and like so this guy was telling me about like mechanical engineering and construction and, and i'm like wow this is i feel like i'm learning so much about things that i never considered yeah so you know i, I love i love that aspect yeah. Yeah. You go in there and observe and then and then talk to folks. You're funny in a way that you 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 told me before we hit record that you're not much of a public speaker, but you obviously have to have pretty good social skills. But so, I love people. I love yeah. people, but I don't like talking at people. It reminds me, I was in the Talia conference, which is in Tennessee last year, last summer, and they had a former FBI agent there that went undercover. His name's Scott Payne. And he, oh my gosh, we had one of the open nights there at at a bar. And to me, watch him work in the room was phenomenal. It was like seeing a professional, like, like person work a room. Like he could talk to anybody. He could engage with anybody. Everybody that he talked to just gravitated towards him. And he could talk to the, the loudest person and the quietest person. It didn't matter. But I was just in awe just sitting back and watching him work the room. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I, I feel I feel like a kindred spirit to him. Yeah. Like so that's definitely a skill and one that uh, that I and socially can be a little bit awkward. So I am in a little bit of awe of that that skill. That takes a lot of vulnerability, I think, with yourself. Yeah. And a genuine interest in other people. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, let's finish up the episode with words to the world. And this is where you can promote any idea that you wish. Catalan, what are your words to the world? I mean, based on everything we talked about and to wrap it up, my words to the world would just be, be a bitch, be mean. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in so many situations where, you know, it's required for you to kind of toughen up. So just don't be afraid to ask questions and if you feel like something is not right or you want to do something else just always say it always very good well i leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later (laughs) but i do appreciate you being on the show catalan thank you so much and you be safe you're very welcome Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.